that we would be blessed and bettered and changed because we have encountered your living word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so thank everybody for being here. My name is Dan. I am the uh, campus pastor here. We're going to be, I'm going to be here for the next three weeks talking about Samson. And by the way, I didn't see anybody get up. So if you're the person with chest pains and you're like, oh, I'll wait until after the sermon, don't wait. Go now. Like, go find Darian now. You can take care of that. And you can find the sermon later uh, on YouTube.com. Just l- look for Gateway Alliance Church and you will find it. It'll be there. And, and that applies like if you're away over the next little while, and you're just like, oh, shoot, I'm going to miss Samson Part 2. YouTube, that is where it is. And, uh, and not only for the folks online, you can go there later on during the week. So we are blessed to be with you this morning. And uh, so we are going to be looking at the story of Samson. And, and I love this series that we're doing right now, uh, Summertime Stories. And, and I have, not just because I, I love stories, but I have an emotional connection to the stories of the Bible. I grew up, I grew up very fundamentalist, and uh, and when I became a teenager, and, and just in a really kind of abusive situ- spiritual situation at my church, it got really weird. It got really confining. And then by the time I was a teenager, I really didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, but I had all of this Bible stuff stored up in my head. I had like spent my entire childhood in my very fundamentalist upbringing memorizing a ton of King James, and I just had all this stuff in my head. So uh, when I went to university, I, there was a class called Introduction to the Bible as Literature. And it was crossless, it was an English class, and it was designed to help people be familiar uh, with all of the references from the Bible that exist in English literature, right? So it was kind of an entry-level class. Uh, so I took this class because the only assignments and the only evaluations were like a Bible knowledge test. So I could have passed this class when I was like seven years old. Like just that was how I was raised, right? So I was just like, this is going to be the easiest class ever. And the only assignment was that you had to read the Bible. And, and I, I just came in expecting it to be a, be a bird class, but then I was like, well, I'll try reading the Bible, and then I actually did it, and, and I found myself falling in love with God again. I had all this information and all these rules and all of this, this stuff, but, but God had never really connected with me, and, and, and I didn't understand how he was working with his people, but, but as I took this class, I started to read the Bible a lot. I would go to... Tim Hortons in Charlottetown, Prince of Rhode Island. Uh, this was back in the day uh, when I was a smoker at the time. Remember when they had smoking sections? And yeah, okay, so I go, what an illusion that was. Like, I'm going to sit at that table and the smoke's not going to get over there. But I would, what a lie we all believed. And uh, but airplanes, smoking section on an airplane. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, anyway, sorry. But I would sit and I would just like, chain smoke cigarettes, and I would read the Bible, and I found the parts of my soul being knit back together again. So when it comes to these stories, I'm very protective of them, and I love them deeply because I think that they change us, and they show us who God is. And when I was around people who were, I, I grew up in a church where people were capricious, and they were dangerous, and they, were, and they didn't seem faithful at all, and all of a sudden I read the Bible, and I was like, oh, it's always been like that. 
and all of a sudden I was able to, to contextualize my experience. So that's what I'm hoping can happen with us today. And, and we're going to be talking about Samson for the next three weeks. And, and because we're going to be talking about Samson, I want to start at the end of Samson's story, okay? So three weeks with Samson. I'm going to cover the beginning, but we're going to start with the end of Samson's story. So this is from Judges chapter 16. So at the end of Samson's story, it says, that when they stood him up among the pillars, Samson and the servant who held his hand said, uh, Samson, Samson said, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Okay? So... Where we are in the story is that Samson has had like a 20-year-long career at this point of murdering Philistines. And, and at this point in the story, from the Philistines' perspective, this man who has killed so many of their brothers and husbands and sons, literally thousands of them, they finally have him at their mercy. So it's a party. And they have reduced Samson at this point to essentially making him an oxen. His job at this point is to, is to push a grinding mill normally used by oxen to grind out grain. And they are having a party because look at our oppressor. This, from the Philistines' perspective, they are like, look at this man who has killed so many thousands of us and now he is at our mercy. And this is where... Samson ends up. So he ends up at the temple. And then Samson reached towards the two central pillars upon which the temple stood, bracing him against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. And I want to start at the end because I want us to understand very clearly throughout the whole way that we go through Samson's story that this is a tragedy. Some of you, like I did, may have grown up learning that seeing Samson as some sort of like Christian superhero. Um, and there's an element of that that is true. Samson has supernatural strength. Samson has supernatural capacity for violence. But this story, like all the stories in Judges, are a tr is a tragedy. And it's a tragedy because it ends in ruin for everyone involved. All of these people die, and the cycle of violence continues. If we keep going on in the book of Judges after the life of Samson, nothing has changed. The next group of people also commit violence against the Philistines and end up in the same cycle. And then afterwards it keeps degrading and degrading and getting worse and worse and worse. And all of Judges is like this. There's a, there's a, it's, it's a tragic cycle where the people of God forget him, forget his ways, they follow their own ways, they get oppressed by the Philistines, they cry out to God for protection, God provides them with protection, they get it, they are freed, then they forget their way again, and it all happens over again. And this is the tragic cycle that everyone in the book of Judges lives in. In fact, it's lovely that we did Ruth last week, because Ruth, if you notice at the beginning, is like, says, during the time of the Judges, Ruth is this like beautiful aside, kind of like a spinoff of, 
of the judges' stories where, like, everything goes right. You know, everyone in Ruth loves the Lord, knows the law, and everything goes well. Everyone in Judges, almost everyone, certainly all the men, very stupid, don't know the Lord, and don't know the law, and it ends in ruin for everyone around them. And that's the story of Samson. And so, and this happens for a couple of reasons. If we go back to, go to the next slide, we're going to see in the beginning of Judges. So the first chapter of Judges is culminating the career of Joshua. Joshua was the great leader of Israel after Moses. He helped people move into the promised land. It started working them in that, in that direction. Um, after he died, though, it says this, that a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors and another grew up who knew neither the Lord what he had done for it, nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. So what happens is a whole generation dies and another generation comes up and they don't know the Lord, they don't know his law, they don't know anything to do. And it's very easy to blame these stupid kids for not knowing this. But I want to ask you the question, if they didn't know, why didn't they know? And the simple answer of why they didn't know the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel, is that no one ever told them. The law that the Israelites had been given was full of commands all through it to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember how God has saved you. Take this law, tie it in strings, and, and, and put it around your wrists, and put it around your head. Paint it on your door frame so that everyone always knows who you are and why you are here. Remember you are slaves in Egypt. Over and over again, this was an instruction for parents and grandparents to be able to say, that was when we were slaves in Egypt. God saved us. This is who we are. This is why we're here. This is why we live the way we do. And this is the story in which you are participating. And for an entire generation of people, that didn't happen. And the result was abject chaos. And I'm sure the parents of this generation probably said a lot of similar things that, that you've heard before. That like, I'm just really busy. I have to provide. I, the, the outside world is too scary and bad an influence. Everything, I, I, I'm frightened by everything. And, and somehow in this, no one knows the Lord, and no one knows his ways. They don't know who they are and why they're here, and it ends up in ruin for everyone. If we can go to the next one. So God was angry. There was another incident of this. God was angry and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. So God subjects these people who did not know the Lord to the natural consequences of their actions. Beforehand, God was driving out the enemies of Israel. He was doing the work, and they ignored him. So the natural consequences of that is God saying, okay, have it your way. And throughout the book of Judges, we see again and again the passive wrath of God. And that's really important for us to acknowledge because God has active wrath. We see God's active wrath in the Bible where he's like, I'm punishing people. I'm going to rain fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going I'm to actively encourage the Babylonians to come in and tear down Jerusalem and, and not leave one stone on top of another. That's the active 
wrath of God. But most often, what happens in the Bible, and really what happens in our lives, most often what we experience is the passive wrath of God, where God says, okay, have it your way. Let's see how that'll work. And throughout the book of Judges, we see again and again the horrific, violent cycle that happens when we ignore God and just have everything our way. Kind of this thesis statement that gets used over and over again in the book of, jo- uh, uh, in the book of Judges is that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone just did as they saw fit. And so can we go to the next one? So we're going to start off with the story of Samson, and I want you to know, as, as much as Samson is not a superhero, this story gets dark. This story is violent. This story has gross and bad things happening in it. And I'm going to tell you all of those things because they're in the Bible. And, and I'm pushing back very consciously against a tradition that has existed in churches for about 200 years, okay? So brief history moment, and then we can get into uh, the story of Samson. So in about the 1800s, the concept of childhood started to exist. I know that that sounds weird, but that's when it really started to exist as uh, as a concept. Before that, if you had a child and they didn't happen to die of any of the numerous things that would kill children at the time, as soon as they were able to move and act independently, they went to work, right? They either went to work in your farm, or they went to work in your factory, or they went to work. But around the 1800s, actually, there was a a revival. There was this movement of God through industrial England, and they were like, hey, wait a minute, kids should just be allowed to be kids for a while before we make laborers out of them, right? And along with this, and and that's a good thing, but along with this came this, this idea that children should constantly be protected from anything bad or evil or scary or or in any way uncomfortable. And there was a guy named Thomas Boulder who started to do this with Shakespeare. So he was like, I would like to give kids Shakespeare plays, but I want to take all the bad parts out of them. I know, that's ridiculous, isn't it, right? Like, how was Romeo and Juliet supposed to end? Like, they married and lived happily ever after? Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? But he did this, and he took out all the bad things. And notably, the stories were worse. And that tradition then was handed down to all of the fairy tales, right? Like, so some of you have heard the story of Hansel and Gretel, right? So in the story of Hansel and Gretel, these, uh, there's, the, the, there's a witch, and she has a house made of candy, and the kids uh, see the witch in the house made of candy, and, and something happens, I forget what. But, but, like, but anyway, she does something bad. But in the original, in the, in the original story of Hansel and Gretel, It ends with Hansel and Gretel escaping the witch, pushing her into her own oven, and she gets burned alive there, right? The boldlerized version, um, they make friends with the witch, and then they share her candy house together, right? I know, it's not as good a story. Um, And not only that, it doesn't teach us anything. Because those stories and the tragedies like we find throughout the Bible exist to teach us something, that the world is sometimes scary and dangerous. And we should be aware of that, and our children should be aware of that. But the Bible is also quite clear that no matter what scary thing we encounter, God is bigger than that thing. Right? So whenever we have these kind of children's stories that take Samson and turn him into a superhero, or, 
or, or, or take Gideon and make him into some, some superhero, or any of these stories from Joshua uh, and Judges, it just reminds me again that we are only, if we do that, then we're only giving our kids half a Bible. And if we only give our kids half a Bible, then they're not ever going to change. And I know that because I grew up with that half a Bible. And it wasn't until I was 18 years old, chain-smoking in a Tim Hortons, reading the Bible for a university class, that it started to change my heart. We've tried to make the Bible safe and fun for the whole family. It is not. The Bible will uproot your entire life because that is what it is intended to do. And we're going to allow God to do that in these stories. So, but also, as much as Judges is like a tragedy, it's also really kind of funny in some ways. Not funny, ha-ha, but more like funny, right? And, and, and we're going to see that because um, most of the characters in this story, certainly all the men, are painfully stupid. And the only thing we can do with that is laugh at them. So, so this is how it starts. So there's been, a, again, we're on like the fifth cycle of the uh, people of Israel getting oppressed by the Philistines. An angel of the Lord appeared to a woman. It never says what her name is, but appears to her and says, you, Samson's mom, you are barren and childless, and you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. See to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay? So we have this interesting place. We've seen this periodically throughout the Bible. Darian already mentioned one of these stories. A barren woman is going to have a child. He's going to be set apart by some ritualistic practices and activities and what he does not put into his body. And he's going to take the lead in freeing the Israelites for the Philistines. Really great, okay? So this woman then and goes and tells her husband, right? The woman goes to her husband and says, A man of God came to me. You look like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't at rad. I didn't ask where he came from. And he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Did you notice she left something out of the story? Well, but something even more important. Why is he here? Can we go back? The boy will be a Nazarite, dedicated from God to the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the Philistines. Next slide. He's just got some rules he's got to follow. You see the difference? Samson planted God here. Sorry, God planted Samson in here with a purpose. And immediately, his mom does not pass that on to her husband. He's been now given gifts and rules and no purpose. Can we go to the next slide? So then Manoah, who's Samson's dad, he hears this, prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, I beg you to let the man of God send us to come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who was to be born. Now, I don't know why Manoah needs to know this. His wife just told him he's to be a Nazarite. But what we're learning in this moment is that Manoah isn't that bright, okay? For one he does not listen to his wife, okay? Always something that makes you dumber as a husband, all right? But secondarily, he doesn't know what a Nazarite is, okay? 
And this is really, uh, so we can go to the next one. So in Numbers 6, in the law that Manoah was supposed to know, because every Israelite was supposed to know the law, it was supposed to be written on the walls, it was supposed to be tied up on their foreheads, they were supposed to share this with their children, everyone was supposed to know this. There's very specific rules for a Nazarite. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows offerings to the Lord in accordance with their dedication. In addition to whatever else they can afford, they must fulfill the vows they have made according to the laws of the Nazarite. And they are that you don't cut your hair for the period of time that you are dedicated. You don't drink alcohol or touch any sort of fermentable material that could be turned into alcohol for the time of your Nazarite, uh, Nazarite vows. You don't touch anything unclean or anything uh, that, has, uh, that has died because you are being set apart. So all of this is written down. There ought to be no mystery for Manoah in how he is supposed to raise his child. It's really obvious. But Manoah's just like, wait a minute, how, how am I supposed to do this? So he prays to God and says, can you send this guy back again? And the guy does come back again, the messenger of the, the Lord. Can we go to the next one, please? Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, go back. I'll just fill that part in. I thought I had it on a slide, but I didn't. But, so this is what happens. So Manoah then, so, so God sends the angel again, and uh, Manoah asks him, like, how am I supposed to raise the ch this child? And, and the angel says to Manoah, uh, like, like a Nazarite. And Manoah doesn't know that. Um, so he has it all explained to him again. And then he has this weird interaction with the angel where he thinks the angel is God. And he's like, I will sacrifice to you. And the angel's like, no, you don't sacrifice to me. Uh, I'm not God. And then the angel disappears, and then Manoah freaks out because God, he thinks God is going to kill him for some reason. All we're seeing in this over and over again is that Manoah is not a bright man. Um, and Manoah loses track, as we see very clearly in the story, and misplaces the rules that he's supposed to give Samson for the role that he gives Sam, he's supposed to give Samson. So the rules for a Nazarite is don't cut your hair, don't drink alcohol, don't touch anything dead. You are set apart. Samson's supposed to be set apart his entire life for the specific purpose of freeing the Israelites from the Philistines. And, and in all honesty, if you think about it for half a second, you can understand why that might be the case. God is going to gift Samson with supernatural strength and an amazing capacity for violence. It's probably not a good idea to drink alcohol if you're that person, right? Like I grew up in the Maritimes. We used to have the expression, whiskey tough. I don't know if that's a thing out in Alberta, but like alcohol doesn't help you make good decisions, especially as relates to violence. So... And as we see, as we go further, no one ever told Samson how this was supposed, to, how these rules were supposed to fit in with who he was. Can we go to the next one? So, so at the end of this, we don't hear much about Samson's growing up, but we, next time we pick up the story, we find him here. Samson went down to Timnah and saw that there was a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me for my wife. Now, his parents are understandably like, hey, maybe you should find a lady from our people, not necessarily the Philistines. And then the writer of Judges adds this little aside that they didn't know that God was going to use this for Samson to pick a fight with the Philistines. But this underlies for us something that's missing. Because if Samson understood who he was, 
as a human being, that God had gifted him with this supernatural strength and capacity for violence for the purposes of freeing his people from the Philistines, is he going to go and find a Philistine wife? Is he going to need God to create a situation for him where he has to be forced into picking a fight with the Philistines? No, that's not going to be the case. If Samson had been told who he was, then he would have understood that I'm going to be taking on these people who are oppressing my, my nation, and it would be kind of awkward if I was married to one of them. And he would understand that I don't need God to put me in a position to pick a fight with a couple of Philistines. I'm going to be organizing all of my people to go out and take them on together. And no one has ever done that for him. And I want us, as we go through the rest of this story, to shift our understanding of who Samson is away from Samson the superhero or even Samson the violent monster that we see later on in the story and understand that at this point, Samson is a lost boy who has all of this strength and nowhere to put it because no one has taken the time to explain to him who he is and why he's here and why he's been given what he's given. So sometime later, so he go, So his parents, uh, like, just give him what he wants anyway, which is probably a bad pattern that we've seen throughout some, Samson's life, that they just, okay, well, fine, you can do that. Like, so they go, and he finds this Philistine wife. And on, on his way there, there's something really interesting that happens. So a lion attacks Samson on his way down there, and he rips it apart with his bare hands, like you do. And then... <laughs> And then he continues on to meet his wife, and then he has to make a trip back. And on the trip back, he, he went, goes back to marry this lady, and he takes a look at the lion carcass that he had torn apart earlier, and in it was a swarm of bees and some honey. So he scooped out the honey with his hands. Now, remember, part of the rules for a Nazarite is that you're not supposed to touch anything dead. And there's even rules and uh, there, there's even notes and numbers that if you accidentally happen to encounter, if you're with someone and they just drop dead in front of you, then you have to go to the temple, shave off your entire body, and then you can go back to being a Nazarite again. You kind of have to start over. But Samson sees this. He understands the rules that he's been given, but he's only ever been given rules, as a, but he's never understood why. So rules then are just meant to be pushed and broken. So he sticks his hand and he ate, it sticks in his hand, grabs the honey, and he ate as he went along. And when he went to his parents, he gave them some of the honey, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken honey from the lion's carcass. So we see very clearly here that rather than being given guidelines about who he was and why he was here and how he was supposed to operate, why he believes what he believes, and how we behave in light of that. He instead was given boundaries to be pushed, he was given rules to be broken, and he was given secrets to be hidden. And all this did for Samson was create somebody who hides. So then, so then, so, so Samson continues on and he goes to get married, and, and they give him 30 companions from the Philistines when he gets there, 30 dudes that are supposed to hang out with him, because Obviously, if you've got a really dumb, strong guy, giving him 30 friends to hang out with is the best idea ever, right? Um, 
30 drunk dudes have never done anything bad. And uh, so he's given these 30 companions, and he wants to try and prove himself. He's trying to big man himself. So he makes, he gives them a riddle, and he says, okay, I'm going to make a bet with you guys. I'm going to bet 30 changes of clothes with you that uh, I'm going to give you a riddle, and you can't solve it. So they're like, okay, sounds like a good deal. If uh, we get 30, we get a set of clothes each if we guess the riddle, and if we don't, we give you 30 sets of clothes. So the riddle is this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the lion, something sweet, right? Out of the strong, something sweet, right? He says, you have seven days to get it. So three days go by, they don't get the riddle. No idea what's going on. And then after three days, they go to Samson's soon-to-be wife and say like, hey, we're going to lose this riddle bet that we made, and we don't want to have to give Samson clothes, so you need to start working on him uh, to get the riddle, okay? And she does. And the Bible tells us that she starts to, to, to work on him, and she asks him on day one and on day two, like, why won't you tell me the secret of the riddle? And he's like, I'm not telling you the riddle. And she's like, but we're going to be married. We need to start trusting each other. Why don't you tell me the riddle? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you the riddle. And this happens for three, uh, day three, day four, day five, day six. Finally, day seven, she weeps and she cries and she wails. And she's like, just tell me the riddle. And he tells her the riddle. And then she immediately goes and tells all of his companions. And spoiler alert, Samson does not learn a lesson from this. Uh, so, then, so then they come back to Samson and they're like, ha, we got the riddle. What is uh, stronger than a lion? What is sweeter than honey? And Samson loses his mind. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of every uh, dead, uh, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions that had attended him at the feast. There's an escalation that happens in this story that is hard for us to grasp. These guys come and say, hey, we won the bet. So Samson gets mad, and he goes and murders 30 other people, takes their clothes to pay off his debt, and then goes home. This is insane behavior, right? This does, has no relation to anything. And the Hebrew actually makes this quite clear, because... The word for armor and the word for underwear sound very similar in Hebrew. And so basically, it, it's quite clear that Samson made an underwear bet and then paid it off in armor. And the reason why they have that is to show this escalation of violence, that Samson has gotten worse, that he is destroying the people around him. And this murder isn't going to stop over the next two weeks. If you, I don't know if you noticed, and there's something that's very confusing on this, because the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. But how could the Spirit of the Lord come upon him to do something evil? I hate to break it to us, guys, but we've seen it, that God gives gifts to people who use them badly. We've seen this in our own lifetime, that God has come 
hugely and with anointing on very charismatic individuals who do what I do, who then use this position to hurt and use other people. So we need to be careful that just because the Spirit of the Lord is upon someone, that they are not necessarily doing something that is good or that is ethical or that is in accordance with God's rules and his kingdom. We are flawed humans who need to be reminded constantly of who we are and why we're here. And without that, we go way off base. And in our lifetime, we've seen guys who do what I do start to take advantage of their congregation, either financially or sexually. And we see Samson do this with violence. And this is the core of Samson's story, that he is a lost boy who is strong and angry and has nowhere to point it. There is no direction for him. And that damages everyone around him. Can we go to the next one? So this is really important. And, and I, you can just, I'm going to get to the law being written on people's hearts, but I'm going to take me a couple of seconds to get there. So the story gets better, don't get me wrong. Um, but, I want, we have, but we have to stop here just because we have to stop somewhere. And it's, it's stopping in this sad part where we're at the beginning of Samson's career of violence. And the reason why we're stopping here is I want us to feel the weight of not passing on to the people around us, especially our children, the story of what we have been saved from and why we're here and what we believe and, and, and why we're doing what we do. Uh, I said I grew up really fundamentalist, and that's true. Um, and the reason I grew up really fundamentalist is because both of my parents uh, had come from homes that were filled with violence and alcohol and chaos. And after they married, they didn't want to live like that, and they found Jesus. And, uh, and part of that path from chaos led to the comfort of fundamentalism. Everything was black and white. It was real easy, right? So that's, the, the, that, that's how they ended up there. And, and, and we, we all moved out of that. But one of the things that my parents always did was tell me the story of how chaotic and violent their houses were when they were growing up. My mom has told me stories of being uh, a child and, and taking apart her dad's shotgun and hiding the pieces all over the house. Um, my dad has told me stories of, of working with his father um, uh, on a car at night and holding a utility light and getting punched in the face and almost knocked unconscious because he held the utility light in the wrong place. So I heard all the time that this is what we have been saved from and this is what we are not going back to. So even in the midst of like that fundamentalism crushing me and, 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 and losing sight of who I was and why I was here, there was a story that reminded me that like Jesus saved us from that. Because as much as 
growing up with the two traumatized children of alcoholics wasn't necessarily always easy. No one ever hit me. And I want us to remember how important it is for us to share the story, especially with our children and our grandchildren, of what we have been saved from. Because if we don't do that, we're only giving them rules. And I know that some of you are like, eh, I feel uncomfortable with it. I don't want to pour my trauma out onto them. You need to show your work as a parent. And you can't be too scared of what the world is going to do to them that you don't tell, this, tell them the story of how you have been saved from the world already. Because knowing your place, knowing your purpose, is the thing that changes you more than anything else in the world. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell this story, and then we're going to go there, and then we're going to be done. So this is a quick... So I used to coach football, um, like helmeted football, not with the round ball. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and one day I got a call from a social worker who worked at a school, and, and she said to me, do you have room on your team for one player? He's, he's a really bad kid, which is a weird thing to hear from a social worker. They don't normally say the kids are bad. Um, we're sort of trained not to. And uh, but I was like, yeah, well, we can probably fit him in. Like, what's his... What's his, you know, like, tell him to come. And I didn't even ask anything about him, but she was like, he's really rough. And I'm like, okay, well, what's his, you know, and she's like, and they were having a problem because he was in junior high. <laughs> and he was like, she was like, well, he gets into fights all the time with all of the other kids, and he's very violent. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, that's not too good. And, and she's like, he's also really big. And I'm like, well, pff, come on, he's in junior high. How big could he be? And she, she was like, she was like, well, he's 6'2 and 300 pounds. And I'm like, okay. And uh, do you think you can, do you think that would be okay? And I'm like, do you realize that you just called a football coach and asked him if a 6'2, 300-pound kid with a rage problem was okay to send? Like, yeah, I'm fine with that. We can figure out, we can figure out something to do with this young man. Um, and when this kid showed up, <laughs> He was the scaredest, saddest kid I'd ever met. And, and I didn't do any amazing work. I'm not saying that, that we did this amazing thing. But what we told him was just like, he had been told his whole life that he was too big, that he was too loud, that he was too angry, that he was too much of everything. And there was no place for him. There was no place for him in the school. There was barely a place for him in his home. There was nothing for this kid. He was too big, he was too angry, he was too sad. And all we did was say, you are perfect right here. Everything about you, we love. So your size, that's an asset. We're excited about that. Get bigger, please, right? Your anger, we want you to do that at football time. Like, don't do that not football time, but at football time, let all that out, you know? Be as angry as you want in football time. And all of a sudden, I saw this kid go from, like, a bent-over, angry shell to within three weeks, he started standing up straight. And that was all from a couple of hours a week of being with a group of people who said, who you are is perfect for us. And that is the thing that Samson never got. So I would just ask you, 
because we live in this temporary time. There's a beautiful truth that is coming. And this is the thing that when I feel sad and scared that I write on. Jeremiah 31, and this promise is promised to us as well. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is the promise that keeps me going at all times, because this promise is for us as well. And do you know what? When the kingdom comes in its fullness someday, I'm out of a job because I'm not going to have to teach the Bible anymore. You're going to know it. I'm not going to have to say to any of my neighbors to know the Lord because they're going to know the Lord. I'm not going to have to explain to my children who they are and why they're here because they're going to know it. And you can know it as well. And that's true for anyone who does any job that is involved with repair of the world as it is. By the way, this is a promise for you. If you are a police officer, you're going to be out of a job someday. Because everyone will know the law and be safe with the people around them. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a psychiatrist or a physical therapist, you're going to be out of a job someday. Because everyone is going to be healed If you're a mechanic even, or someone who fixes all of the things that inevitably break down and decay, you're gonna be out of a job because there is no more crying or pain and the old order of things has passed away. But in the meantime, in order to make sure that we don't have angry, scared, lost boys damaging everyone around them. We need to take seriously the task of knowing the Lord and teaching it to other people. We need to take seriously the task of letting our kids know who they are and why we're here. We need to take seriously the task of letting them know what we have been saved from so that they can be saved from it too so that they don't just get rules. They get an understanding of who they are and why they're here. And if you don't know that, if you don't know who you are and why you're here yet, then you need to talk to one of us and we'll let you know. But I promise you, it's for your hope and it's for your blessing and it's for your joy. Let's pray. God, it feels awkward to stop in the middle of a tragedy. And yet we do it all the time. Our lives, our day-to-day -day lives are rarely wrapped up with a bow and a neat little ending. So we ask that in this meantime, where the story doesn't seem finished, that you would meet us here. And that you would remind us again that the day is coming where it's gonna be different. That the day is coming where your new deal with humanity is gonna be sealed and where everything is going to be made right, not just outside in the world, but in our hearts and in our minds as well. But help us at this point to have the courage, to have the strength, to have the endurance, 
to tell the people around us why we follow you, how you have changed us and saved us, what we have been saved from, and why we live the way that we live. Because if we don't pass that on, God, the people around us get lost. So we would ask that you would, you've given us that task, so help us to fulfill it. And we ask this in your name.